you say you do here yep welcome to the podcast that has everyone saying what would you say you do here so we got a special treat to open up the show uh a listener a reader of books um mr randy carley is going to jump on here and just tell all of the wonderful things about the Diojo podcast. Um, here we go. Hey, Randy. <laughs> Morning, John. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Left my headphones at home this morning, so I'm having to go up. So you're you're down. Uh, so this is the Washington show. Al, who's coming on, is uh, up north. Uh, I'm in the middle, and then you're down south, Washington, right, Vancouver area. Uh, Ridgefield, yeah. Ridgefield. So, all right. Well, um, tell our audience just um, how wonderful I am, how this book has changed your life, how the podcast has made you millions of dollars. Ready, go. I didn't think you'd ask me to lie right away. Um, <laughs> no, it, it was a it was a good book. Uh, I don't avidly read. Uh, most of my reading is targeted at things that actually going to help me in my life. Yeah. And, when I first noticed the Diojo come on and started promoting the book, uh, it seemed like something I should at least look into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was I was surprised. Um, you know, it it's a very fundamental or rudimentary book in a sense. Uh, it, it talked about a lot of things, particularly with estimating that I see a lot of people already doing. Yeah. Uh, I haven't met a lot of folks that aren't implementing most of those, but the part of it that really got to me is the tone that you set when it comes to leadership relative to estimating so many yeah. estimators kind of lack in that department sometimes or are maybe just unaware because they've been doing what they've been doing for so long sure. and uh, to me it, it really kind of drove home that whether we're just estimators project managers or we're active supervisors in the field or just technicians in the field we all need to be more cognizant of where we came from or yeah. where everybody else came from that's sure. kind of working for us. Yeah. Well, that's like we used to always teach our mitigation teams, think about the guys that come behind you, right? The ones that have to put the drywall back. So you want straight yep. lines, split a stud, those kinds of things. Um, yeah. So it, it's we're, we all play a part in a much broader picture. And so, you know, no piece is more important than the other. Um uh, so please, constructive criticism. Uh, what's uh, what are some of the the gaps in the book that people need to be aware of before they spend their hard earned money on this crap? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's crap. Um, I would definitely say keep doing it, keep writing books. Um, I would love to see a book in the future that kind of aims more at the technician level or you know, whether it's restoration industry specific or just general trade specific, um, you know, kind of targeting people who are in that bracket, people who yeah. aren't necessarily in management yet or in the early supervisory stages, something that kind of targets them, gives them a better idea of where they could go in the world or where they could yeah. go within the industry, something that maybe gives them a, at least a granule of hope that they're not just going to be a tech forever or they're not just going to be a laborer forever yeah. uh, if they decide that they actually like doing what they do. Yeah. Well, I think I tried, that was kind of the goal and maybe that's too broad is, you know, Hey, if you want to advance in restoration, we all know estimating is kind of the, the core of it, right? Um, that's where the, the rain happens. And then, you know, if you're a manager trying to teach other people or if you're trying to, you know, up your game, you know, then that's uh that was kind of the perspective of the book. So that's awesome, man. Well, I'd love 
any more input that you have on that um, and maybe uh, we'll get some inserts from you because I know you train crews and, and have developed your career. That's a, I mean, I say that in the opening of the book, right? If, if I could do it, anybody can. So, <laughs> you know, so that, I think that's the beauty of our industry is it's always something new. It's challenging and, and you really can carve out uh, a career for yourself, um, uh, helping people and doing, doing fun things. So any other, uh, drive. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of help, right? Any other closing yeah, words for the thousands of listeners? Um, Anything you're looking forward to in 2021? Uh, well, the 2020 is over. That's that's yeah. a blessing. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it, I think it's going to be a good year. Uh, just as a general tone, things are starting to improve, at least amongst the people, while everything we see in the media may not necessarily be improving. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely seems like people are starting to feel better. People are starting to... Uh, perhaps even behave better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely a lot of positive outlook for this year as it as it moves forward. And to steal your words, keep doing good things. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and thank you to your organization for letting you um, do this. So we appreciate it. I appreciate your encouragement, and uh, keep rocking and rolling, man. Always a pleasure, John. All right. Talk to you a bit. All right. Take it easy. Okay, so there we go. Um, so that was fun. Um, uh, always, it, uh, Randy reached out and shared, get, left a review of the book. Again, the book, not to toot or be intentional estimating. Um, so that is the goal. Help people shorten your dang learning curve. You know, estimating is often where um, that comes to, um, you know, as it relates to uh, developing your career within property restoration. So I am super excited. Um, I reached out to Al and um, got a copy of this book, The Service Master Story, Navigating the Tension Between People and Profit. And so, um, you know, that's that's big. You know, I, I believe the majority of the people in our industry get into it because they want to help people um, and, and, and do good things. And so it is very, very interesting to read, you know, how that uh, played out with Service Master and the vision of Marion Wade, the founder. Um, and so Al, uh, let's see, I have it up here, has a couple of other books. You got The Service Master Story, The Accidental Executive, and Connecting Faith and Work in the 21st Century. He is the co-chairman of the Theology of Work Project and our neighbor here in the Pacific Northwest. So without further ado, drum roll, please. Do, 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 do. Let's bring in Al. Hey, John. Good morning, Al. Oh, that's not what I want. Let me uh, let me make it a little adjustment there. Okay. Okay. So I, I'm terrible at uh, pronouncing names. How do we pronounce your last name? Erisman. Erisman. Okay. So I was pretty close. I've been saying Erisman. <laughs> okay. So um, I, uh, I, I gotta say, man, I really did. Uh, what a, an awesome blend of history um, as well as like actionable principles. Um, and, and just uh, it's very interesting. I think um, some people know my career in property restoration. I answered an ad for carpet cleaning for a service master in Ventura, California. Wow. And um, the owner, I was studying for criminal justice at the time. <laughs> and the owner <laughs> said, with your background in science, you would be a great fit for our mold remediation division. And I said, yeah, I think I would. <laughs> and so um, so that's how we got started. So there was for me, it was really interesting hearing more of the, the background story and kind of what led up to that point. And as we'll get into our talk, um, I think my manager was more in line with those carrying on those values, um, whereas you kind of talk about there was some shift there about the time I joined the organization. So yeah. let's talk. You talk a little bit about in the book. How did you even come to to write this? Um, I had gotten to know a man named Bill Pollard, who was the fourth CEO of Service Master. Yep. And um, one day he called me and just kind of out of the blue, he said, I think there needs to be a book on the history of the company. And I think you ought to write it. <laughs> and I said, now, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm busy. I'm not a historian. Um, and maybe I could help you find someone. 
But like I told him, he stole real estate in my brain because yeah. he sent me some things that got me really intrigued about a very unusual company. And so I agreed to do it. Uh, I didn't realize I was embarking on a three-year research project that had me scrolling through the archives of newspapers and old uh, annual reports and interviewing people all over the world and reading 30 books. And yeah. it all kind of came together as a, an incredible story that I uh, I love. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, so uh, prior, do I have that right? You had um, the accidental executive looks like 2015 and then connecting faith and work were both yeah 2014 right so you had those two books are there more in the uh al airsman treasure trove <laughs> well i don't think any of your audience would be interested in direct methods for sparse matrices it's a graduate math text <laughs> oh <laughs> but wow. i i used to be a math researcher i ran an r d center at boeing and okay. uh out of that uh came uh, some of the work that I've done. So yeah, I've got a few other things, but probably not of great interest to the science. <laughs> so the math book and then the majority is this, uh, so you had a career at Boeing and then right. has, while you were at Boeing, is that when you started um, participating in that um, intersection between faith and work? Correct. It, it was early on in my time at Boeing when I began to realize that I had been called to do the job I was doing. It wasn't just a job. And yeah. uh, trying to develop that in a large corporation is a challenge. And yeah. I think it's a challenge for anyone, large or small corporation. Yeah. And so trying to work that out was a part of it. And then I started interviewing business leaders all over the world. I produced a magazine called Ethics, uh, okay. where I probably interviewed 110 business leaders from all over the world, including uh, Bill Pollard. And uh, that's really where I got to know him early in the 2000s. Um, so that, uh, you know, and obviously in, in quote unquote religious terms, it's faith and, and work, but uh, on the broader scale is just, you know, designing your company to reflect your values, right? So correct, correct. Your designing your company to uh, reflect your values, to think about purpose beyond a paycheck, yeah. To think about uh, what it really means to have a career. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the world of technology has kind of changed a lot of businesses. And yeah. that's what drove this idea of interviewing business leaders to see how they're navigating this incredible transition that we are going through. And yeah. um, so uh, the service master thing was just kind of a natural outgrowth of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's dig into um, so the the pieces. I think right off the bat, the quote I love was from, um, and I've quoted it in a few articles since, was from Marion Wade. And I had it right here, and I always mess it up, so I always like to look it up. But he's like, "Don't expect to build a super company with super people. You must build a great company with ordinary people." And then he said famously, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. So um, obviously, Marion was a man of faith, right? And, mm -hmm. and um, you talk about in the book, there comes a point where he realized some of the way he was doing business wasn't in alignment with that, uh, those values. Um, what were some of, I, I know that's obviously, you know, key to, to what you do. What, uh, what are some of the nuggets there? As far as somebody, we've got a business owner, they're, they're starting out on their entrepreneurial uh, journey and, you know, there's the core of who they are and getting that in alignment with uh, first your business and then carrying that out through how you hire and train, right? Right. Yeah. So Marion uh, started the company in 1929 yeah. and it was the time of the depression and he needed work and his company had closed. So he started a company. Yeah. He, he had an eighth grade education. He was an inventor and uh, he invented a way of moth proofing. He invented a way of carpet cleaning, uh, had some patents. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story all by itself. But in 1944, he had an accident and this accident turned out to be providential because he was uh, moth proofing a closet and his mixture blew up in his face and he was blinded. 
Yeah. He, the doctors thought he would be blind for the rest of his life. He actually did recover his sight, but he was in the hospital for about a year. Huh. And during that time, he said, I'd always thought of, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've always thought about my business, but that was in a separate box. And he asked the question, what would it look like if my business aligned with my values? And that was uh, in the 1944-45 timeframe. And it suddenly transformed everything about the way he was thinking about his business. It, he had only about eight people. He wasn't uh, incorporated. He didn't have a name. Yeah. He hired a guy to help him. And this guy was more of a business guy than Marion Wade, but Marion had set the boundaries for, here's what success means. Here's yeah. what it means to value the people that are in the workplace. Here's what it means to do this work in a way that would really make a difference and give people purpose and meaning beyond their paycheck. Yeah. And all that foundation he set. Yeah. So like you said, purpose and meaning beyond the paycheck. So, <laughs> I mean, his first hire, his first business person, right? That's because uh, Marion was the typical innovator, entrepreneur, right? right? And so- right. Uh, that's uh, Ken, right? Um, Ken Hansen, yes. The first Ken. and yeah. uh, But Ken's background is uh, as a pastor, right? Right. Uh, yeah, uh, he, was a, he was a pastor. He uh, was working in uh, some nonprofit work. Um, but interestingly, he had a, a son who was, um, who was born with some uh, deformities. Okay. Wasn't able to function. The, the doctors told him he ought to uh, be put in an institution, but Ken wouldn't hear that. And it shaped his life in thinking, okay, I need something different from going out on the mission field. I wonder what that would be. Meanwhile, Marion Wade had observed him in starting a church that he was really entrepreneurial. Yeah. And I, 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 I wish that I could have talked to Marion and said, Marion, what did you see in Ken? He had none of the credentials to do this work. Yeah. But Ken actually had a very natural business bent. Uh, Marion Wade gave him a really interesting instruction when he asked him to take on the work. He said, I want you to pay people as well as you can. If there's money left over, I want you to pay yourself. And if there's anything left over after that, pay me. And so it was an orientation toward the worker and toward thinking about success for those people. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Ken Hansen incorporated the company. He named the company. Yeah. It says something about him, the way he named the company. It was at first Wade Winger and Associates. And Ken Hansen was the key guy. People said, well, why didn't you put your own name in there? And he said, well, I did. It's and Associates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it shows you something about the servant leadership nature of of that uh, leadership team. Yeah, quite. Uh, well, and it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, you know about Ken Hansen, and and they talked about the development. You know uh, when they would bring people on, go door to door, or actually, you know, hey, I'll start the conversation, then we'll do the right. cleaning, and then you finish it out. You know that hands-on type of training. Uh, my wife's. Uh, dad is a is a retired minister but um you know they they remodeled a church themselves and so from that he got a lot of construction experience and so the for the rest of his life um you know he uh worked with his hands and, and used that as a, a way to um you know make some inlays into the community that maybe wouldn't have been open to a more traditional pastor you know in that sense so um so it, 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 I, I saw a lot of parallels there, and it, it is interesting. I mean, at the core of it, you know, getting to know people, breaking down barriers, and then salesmanship doesn't have to be something slimy, right? You, you're just right. trying to give somebody something that they're looking for. So Absolutely, yeah. Um, so you brought up the, the, the servant leadership. Um, so I think two core principles that came out of this that um, – that were really interesting is you talk about the shingle principle, right? right? Where as Ken came on, it wasn't as though Wade's like, all right, I'm out, you know, I'm going to cash my check and uh, you know, I'll show up for the board meetings. 
but you know, uh, Wade had laid um, the the foundation, and then Ken was a complementary shingle, you know, on that uh, foundation. And then the next, uh, at least the next two, you know, key leaders also viewed that. Uh, why is that so unique? But also uh, the proof of that being so successful. I mean, they had meteoric growth. Right. You, know, you said from 29 to, you know, the 90s. Right. So I think it was successful because it shows something about the uh, humility of the leader. Yeah. You know, often when a leader steps in, they want nothing to do with the previous leader because they want to establish their own mark. Yeah. But when a person has a bit of humility, and I think that's uh, fundamental to a leader, it allows them to say, there are things that you know that I don't know. Yeah. How can I take advantage of what you know? And so Ken Hansen would say, Marion Wade was a much better salesperson than I was. Yeah. So he'd bring them in to give a pitch to a client. But Marion wasn't as good with the money stuff. Yeah. So he didn't want to do the clothes. And so Ken Hansen would come along and do the clothes. Yeah. And yeah. they found that they could respect and work together in a way that uh, I've not really seen happen. And yeah. it did continue all the way through the 90s, through five leaders, in a way that allowed each one to use the gifts and abilities that they had, but lean on the other one for their gifts and abilities. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's super unique, but, you know, that whether it's the yin and the yang, um, you know, we've talked about previously the Gino Wickman traction uh, innovator integrator. Um, you know, there's you know, there's the operations and the sales. Right. I mean, you need those. And typically, if you have a bent towards one that comes a little more naturally to you, you're maybe by nature deficient in the other. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, I, I just think that's so, it is important for a leader to establish their own, um, their own stamp on something. And it, and as you read the book, they were able to, right? Um, Absolutely. It, and, and the previous leader had enough uh, humility also to say, I'm going to get out of the way and let yeah. you do it in your right. way. But at the same time, they would reach back and talk to each other. Yeah. And it's interesting that the way they built this company uh, it, it's important that the measure of success and the purpose and all of those things went first. Yeah. And then Ken Hansen layered on a business acumen that put structure around the uh, business that instituted growth that created new opportunity for the company. He's the one that took, uh, incorporated them, as I mentioned, but he also took them public. Yeah. And when they went public, um, he recognized, I don't really have all the business skills I need to do uh, to run yeah. a public company. Uh, so he went to University of Chicago on weekends while he was uh, CEO of yeah. the company to get an MBA. And uh, it, it was just interesting that skill. But then they recognized another guy, uh, the other Ken, who had uh, process skills. And so he put some structure around the way they were doing business. He's the one that established the four objectives that the company uh, had been managing with informally for many years, but ultimately he formalized them into four things that the company would focus on uh, throughout the history of the company through the 90s. Uh, the first one reflected Marion Wade, to honor God in all we do. And that sounds really strange for a public company, but what yeah. they interpreted at uh, for the marketplace was it means the very highest standard of ethics, the recognition that every person has is worthy of dignity and respect and has value, yeah. and that all work has dignity. You know, people yeah. had minimized the kind of work that they did, which was scrubbing floors and taking care of housekeeping and those kinds of things. Yeah. But they said, no, this is really important work. In fact, in 2021, we can reflect on this a bit and realize that it was back in the 50s that Service Master understood the concept of the essential worker essential before worker. we invented the term in 2020. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, you know, the a lot of the hires, you know, um, uh, initially were filling needs, right? Uh, staffing right. vision and to need at the same time. I, I found it um, 
it seems like I, I think this was through those first five was uh, a unique aspect where the majority of them spent at least some period of time in the field. Um, and that served two purposes. A lot of them had no prior experience in the industry. Right. Um, right. But also, uh, I think this is uh, Wade saw potential enhancing. This is page 24. He talked about you start to learn the business by going out on production jobs. Then you can move into sales. This experience will equip you for real leadership. After that, you can step in where you are needed most. And there's some funny stories about various guys. Uh, I think the one guy, I think it's the same story where he's down, you know, scrubbing a floor and one of his wife's friends is like, you know, I heard you got a new job. Wow. You must really be doing well. And he's like, I have an MBA. You know? yeah, right. Right. So, right. Not even acknowledging him and those kinds of things. Why, um, why don't, I guess, Critical to the company's success, it complemented that shingle aspect. It grounded them in understanding the dignity of, of being a tradesperson, right? Um, right? And connected them to that better. Um, why was that so important to the company? And then kind of leading into the 2000s, why did those things drop off? So, yeah. Well, let's go to the second one later. But the yeah. first one, why was it so important? They felt that if you're going to lead people in a purposeful way, you yeah. really need to be able to uh, uh, experience what they experience. And so for, uh, for a very practical reason, if a leader was going to lead these people, they needed to know what their life was like. They needed to experience it, both for creating uh, opportunities for making work better. So it was the third guy, actually, that through this experience recognized uh, we need a research department. That's really unusual in a, uh, in a housekeeping kind of company. And the research department was, how do we design a mop that allows a worker to stand up straight and not hurt his back? How do we uh, clean in such a way that people, uh, that we know that we are effectively cleaning? And so they would do research on these things and they would bring people in to try different ways to experiment uh, so that they could work effectively, but productively. And all of that was a really important part of understanding the worker. A second thing they did though, which I, I haven't seen many companies do, they wanted the people, even at the bottom of the organization, to understand that their purpose was bigger than a paycheck, mm. that they were doing something meaningful and important that made a difference. So early on, way back in the 60s, they started having uh, contracts to do cleaning and housekeeping service for hospitals. Yeah, And so they would bring the doctors and nurses in to talk to the uh, janitors. Yeah and say, you're not just cleaning the floor, you're helping the patient get well. Yeah. Here's the link between what you're doing and yeah. a bigger purpose. And it fundamentally changed the way they thought about their work. And one uh, Harvard professor actually did a research study on Service Master and what made them tick. And he concluded they have cracked the code on the service industry <laughs> by giving the workers a level of self-esteem that they had never had before. And I believe that uh, often uh, one, one of the leaders said, most people think about the workers as the object of work, mm. but we like to think of them as the subject of work. Mm. As people, they are important, they are making a contribution. How do we create an environment that recognizes that? Yeah. And when people do this, they get really engaged in their work in a way that's very different from putting in their time. Yeah. And it really was transformative. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, uh, a humble plug, but that's one of the, um, we just wrote a book, uh, Be Intentional Culture with, yeah. um, thankfully I was able to get co-authors that are much more talented than myself, but uh but we talked about how taking care of your culture is critical to taking care of your people. Taking care of your people is essential to taking care of your customers. And taking care of your customers is the foundation of a sustainable business. Um, and so 
it's it's insane it's wild um you know i started early 2000s you 90s and 2000s you could say you know um leaders had maybe the quote unquote uh ability to say well workers are a dime a dozen we can replace you tomorrow right right and, and in the current marketplace uh it's escalated to the point where that's not the case i mean you need workers almost more than you need clients there's plenty of work currently um, and that could change at any time. But, uh, you know, learning how to manage your people, those soft skills has become more important than ever because uh, keeping good people is key to providing good service, is key to getting good clients. Um, and like you said, crack the code was well, pretty wild. It, you don't have to do a whole lot to crack the code. Just treat people well, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. And recognize their their own desires as well, yeah. as opposed to um, you fit in this box and you do this. Yeah. How do you create an environment where, where people's ideas really matter. Yeah. And, it, you know, going back to an earlier quote you made uh, from uh, about um, not having perfect people and perfect systems. One of the problems with this is that sometimes people mess up, leaders mess up. Yeah, yeah. They, they start, they, they have this intent, but they, it, it becomes about themselves. Yeah. Where are the checks and balances in that? And they tried to develop that as well. And they said, one of the, one of the marks of servant leadership is forgiveness. Hmm. That is, I have to be willing to recognize that I took over in that meeting and I silenced these people and I'm sorry. What was it that you wanted to say? And in fact, Ken Hansen actually uh, wrote a little book called Reality, where he focused a lot on this idea of the need for leaders to be humble enough to say, I'm sorry, and to seek forgiveness. Yeah. And it, it, it because people don't expect a perfect leader. Yeah. But they do want one who is real and who acknowledges a mistake. Yeah. Well, and that, like you said, uh, 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 and a lot of people have mentioned, you know, it's, it's key to businesses. Uh, what's the, the quote is, um, success comes from experience and experience comes through failure. Right. And yes. so figuring <laughs> out how to create an environment where people feel, uh, empowered to take some risks, you know, and, and, and try to do the right thing. Um, you know, and for the most part, you know, when people make mistakes, they're trying to do yeah. what they believe is the right thing. Maybe they need a little more education or, or uh, um, understanding the consequences of what they're doing. So I, I wanted to, I, for what I really grabbed, I think the concepts that I think are actionable for anyone at any scale is understanding as you grow your organization, that shingle concept, right? Right. Um, and that you could apply whether you're growing your company or you have managers at any level or employees. Um, and then also the encouragement. Um, there is a part about that in the book. Uh, uh, the uh, Ted McCarthy, who helped uh, re-establish um, Gibson Guitars as a, as a um, an entity. Um, and then also, uh, I'm thinking back when I was working at Belfour, Sheldon Yellen went on Undercover Boss. Yeah. You know, and the value of a leader getting down, you know, in the trenches. Um, and uh, he does a, a better job than most of, you know, trying to go out to jobs and, and seeing where his employees are working. So those things stuck out to me. What what for you as you went through the writing process, is there anything that maybe we're missing for, again, that uh, uh, restoration contractor that's trying to build a company? that uh, aligns with their values, empowers people, and you know, depending on what their vision and values are as far as growth, is there any other key lessons that you pulled out of that that you think are helpful? Yeah, I think one of the, uh, one of the things, if I go back to the four objectives, to honor God and all we do, to help people develop, to pursue excellence and to grow profitably. And these are in tension with each other. Yeah. Because you might say, in order to grow profitably, I need to do these things that kind of cut the corner on valuing a person. Yeah. How do I hold on to that tension? And Ken Hansen used a, a nice visual that I think is helpful. He said, when you take conflicting objectives 
it's like an exercise band where you're holding on to them and you're stretching this out. Yeah. And tension comes in. And he said, the tension is what drives creativity because you want to hold on to both. And then he smiled and he said, and if you let go of either one of them, it will hit you in the face. Yeah, and yeah. so this whole idea of holding on to tension between things, hence the subtitle navigating tension between people and profit. So this idea that it's not going to be easy because yeah. sometimes you say, I just don't see a way to do this and still honor people. But they held on to that. A second thing that I would say is that they had profit as what they called a means goal and not an end goal. Okay. Now, what that meant was they wanted to help people develop. Therefore, they needed to grow and they needed to make money because otherwise the business wouldn't be there. And so this idea of growing profitably was important but as a means to allowing people opportunity, growth, and a future in the company. Yeah. And when you get those two reversed, it changes yeah. everything because people then become the object of work and the means by which you profit. Yeah, and yeah. so holding on to that tension was really an important key. Uh, if I could mention one other thing, I mentioned the idea of establishing the values and the purpose and the goal of success for Marion Wade, establishing some business practices, and then establishing these processes that Ken uh, Wessner put in, uh, where he formalized these four objectives, where they established training programs across the company. Only then, when Bill Pollard came in in 1981, was the company ready to do acquisitions? Mm. And the reason for doing acquisitions was they had this vision that if housekeepers and people working and doing cleaning and restoration, those kinds of things are important. And these workers had never been treated well before and we can make a great company. What are some other workers that would benefit from this same way of thinking? And so they made a major acquisition in 1986, uh, Terminex for the uh, pest control. And then they started adding lawn care and home inspection. And they had all sorts of brands by the end of the 90s. But the goal was really to say, here are some people who are ordinarily treated as being at the bottom of the ladder, uh, expendable, not of value, what would happen in these industries if we actually instituted this way of leadership for them? Right. And that would, so part of the key to growth was actually recognizing that anyone working in this, uh, in a way that the world usually treats as expendable, low cost labor, anyone in that area could benefit from leadership that helped them see the importance and value of what they did and how they could grow as people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, it, so Bill Pollard instituted that. And then Carlos Cantu, the fifth of the CEOs in this line that took them up to the late nineties, Carlos had come in through the Terminex acquisition and he really got what was going on. Uh, what Carlos brought to the table that, really infused the company after that was an understanding of diversity and the growth of opportunities for women and for uh, people of color. And all of that kind of uh, took off in the 90s under Carlos's leadership. And, and I find it really providential that the, the steps of what is success, having business structure, having processes, doing acquisitions, thinking about diversity, they came in that order. Yeah. And I think if you didn't have the first foundations, you could never build the other things. Uh, so it was, uh, it was amazing in that way. Uh, I should mention one other story that I think is, is really important. Um, Bill Pollard had been recognized by the leadership through some connections at Wheaton College, actually, that um, maybe he would be a good leader for this company. And he came in for his interview and he was told before the interview that maybe he yeah. would be a CEO someday. And he said, I got thinking about that. 
And so when I went into the interview, I started asking the question, okay, how long would it take for me to be CEO? Uh, what are the things I would have to prove in order to be CEO? And after five minutes, Ken Hansen stood up and he said, the interview is over, please leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bill said he, he, he'd blown it and he didn't really know how. And that night he got a call from Ken Hansen saying, let's have breakfast. Yeah, I want you to understand what went on there. And Ken Hansen said to him, if you want this job for the title, we're not interested. Wow. But if you want to be in this position to serve, then we're interested. Hmm. And he's, uh, Bill Pollard told me that was a life-changing event for him because it reoriented him to thinking about the company yeah. in a different way and think about his role in a different way. Yeah. And then what he found when he got hired Here's a, a lawyer who'd been a vice president who'd run a law firm. And for his first six weeks, he put on the green suit yep. and was scrubbing floors at a hospital. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's interesting you bring that up. I recently had a friend that um, uh, went through a long process for getting hired and they threw a curveball at the end uh, saying, you know, hey, maybe we want you to go into the field prior to um coming on to a leadership role, uh, but almost like a, a bait and switch. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we talked about that and I talked about, you know, the principles from the book. And I said, there's a positive aspect from that where you get to know the people because it was, he had been industry adjacent, but hadn't worked directly in that industry. And I said, so there's some value in some camaraderie and knowing how that company does things from the bottom up. But um the way they were implementing it was and explaining it was much more, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> counter to the way they had explained the process up to that point, you know. So, whereas this, I remember that story in the book is a lot more consistent, right, with how right. they had operated. Um, so, so now we get to um, kind of an interesting part in the post two thousands. Um, they, they, the first time they kind of bring somebody, I guess, from, uh, outside of the fold, I think you have a, a combination of things. Uh, they don't necessarily, um, it doesn't seem like that same conversation happened about, Hey, the shingle principles, this is how we do things. Um, that person wasn't encouraged to do the six weeks in the field. And then you had, I think it was Bill Pollard and Contu were still on the board. They pull off, right? <laughs> kind of at a critical uh, moment. So how do all those things co convalesce into not, how does a company that's so committed to those things not move forward with them? Yeah, there were a variety of circumstances. One of the hardest chapters I wrote was a, was a, was a transition thing yeah. because it was it's a very complex situation. But what happened is that Carlos Cantu, who had become the uh, CEO in 1993, 94, starting in 94, they expected he would be there for 10, 15 years yeah. in that role. And in 1997, he actually uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. And he hung on for a period of time, but in 1990, uh, uh, 99, early, late 98, he couldn't continue. Mm -hmm. And so Bill Pollard actually had to step back in as an interim, uh, as a CEO again, with the proviso that this was not going to be a long-term thing and they would look for a replacement. Yeah. They had a... Um, they had a uh, uh, someone from inside who was probably capable of doing this, but this was no longer a little company as they were through these other transitions. This was now a $6 billion company in 40 countries, and they were concerned. Uh, you remember the, the nonsense at the end of the 90s with the dot-com and all this kind of yep. stuff, and yep. Market was rewarding everyone with .com and no one in the regular services business, and their stock had taken a hit. And um, so the board was very concerned about how do we kind of think about navigating the new world, and maybe we need someone from the outside. So they interviewed quite widely, and they found a person who would, uh, who they thought would take over. They had talked about shingles on the roof. They had talked about their four objectives and all of these things. 
But shortly after arriving, he made the decision to sell off a uh, a major chunk of where all the foundation had been set, and that was in the hospital services area, and uh, sold that off for some money to be able to do some other kinds of things. He um, quickly told Wall Street, uh, one of the interviews I found, you know, it's really all about maximizing shareholder value. Mm. That's really why we're here. And Bill, uh, Bill and some others were very concerned about this. Bill wrote a long note to, to the new guy saying, I like these things about what you're doing, but I'm concerned about these. What about this? What about this? But the new guy wanted to run it on his own. And uh, so ultimately, Bill said, I've, uh, I've got to resign. I can't. If, if the board doesn't want to go along with this, I want to resign. So in 2003, he resigned. So did some other people that have been there for a long time. Uh, the new guy, uh, John Ward, actually made some changes then in uh, the four objectives. He took out, he moved to help people develop down and put something about customers up at the beginning, not yeah. recognizing the sequence you had talked about of if your people are really uh, going for it, uh, then this will work. And then by about 2005, the company had struggled. Yeah. Uh, under this new leadership, uh, you look at the growth line, the profit lines that had existed up until this time, and then you begin to look at the data for 2001 to 2005, and it they just weren't performing. They had a loss year. Um, and so what they decided to do is sell to an investment banker and go private. So they went private. They went through a, a five or six, three or four different leaders over that private period. Then along came a guy who took them public again in 2013. And he is the first one to reach back to Bill Pollard. And he said, Bill, you guys had all this success in the 80s and 90s. What did you do? Hmm. And Bill went through what they had done. This guy said, you know, I love the idea. But we are, we're a different company. It's cute, right? It's cute. Yeah. yeah. And ultimately, uh, he didn't meet a quarterly target and he was fired. And then uh, several other leaders were, were fired. And then ultimately, um, many of the brands that have been added, they didn't understand why they'd been added to enable the workers. They thought they were added just for revenue. And yeah. so one by one, they got spun off. And uh, then uh, last year, um, they were, uh, everything else broke off except for the Terminex, that big acquisition in 86. The company is now Terminex. The, the Service Master brands are owned by a private equity firm. Right. And they, uh, you know, I've reached out to someone there and said, I wanted, I'd love to tell you why you were so successful before yeah, yeah. and what it took to get there. Uh, but it, they haven't really um, responded. And sure. uh, so I, I don't know exactly where the future is, but the service master brands are now held by this private equity firm and the company all that's left is Terminex. Yeah, it's rebranded to that Terminex Holdings and it is still public, right? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, mergers and acquisitions have become a big thing. Um, you know, it was key in the growth of many of the largest companies in the industry. And then um, now private equity is uh, is descending like Thanos, right? <laughs> Gathering up all the stones. Um, <laughs> so um, I guess just to, to circle back in closing, um, it is your book is proof. It's possible to build a company that is successful by traditional metrics um, using vision and value and alignment as, as the core, um, you know, and, and obviously we don't know, uh, 2000 has changed a lot of things, you know, had Cantu stayed, you know, 
obviously right. you would have had to, to ride the wave too. Uh, you have to adapt and whatnot. Um, but uh, so with your other work, um, you know, with that intersection with faith and, um, and ethics.org, um, do you see other companies that are kind of showing the example of investing in your people and following those core values um, can still lead to modern day success? Oh, yeah. Uh, so one of the interviews I did, this was probably back in 2005, but I've been tracking the company since, is uh, Costco, also okay. publicly traded. What uh, is, they, what's the name of the company? Costco. The, the Costco, the big box store whole, uh, retail. What? Costco. I'm, I'm totally pulling your leg. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, one of the things that attracted me to thinking about that company was that they, uh, there was an article that said, uh, we invest in our people. We wow. want to make sure that our people are paid a living wage so that they can do, uh, develop as workers. Yeah. And Wall Street was very critical of them because they thought they paid their workers too much. Yeah. But uh, Jim Senegal at the time uh, told me, he said, you know, um, we'll let Wall Street take care of themselves. But for us, if we invest in our worker, we believe we will end up returning a fair amount to the shareholder. Yeah. And they have hung on to that. Now their new leader is Craig Jelinek. There are elements of this in a lot of companies, though. I um, I haven't tracked Starbucks recently, but in 2005, I interviewed their CEO and they made a commitment to how, how they could develop benefits for their workers, yeah. how they could... Uh, pay farmers a living wage for growing their coffee rather than the going market rate yeah. uh, in order to establish a long-term uh, business. I found lots of small businesses privately held that operate in this way. And I think actually it's probably more uh, the norm than you might think because they don't make headlines. They just do a yeah. good job. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, th there is this funny line though, that needs to be, we need to be reminded of one of the leaders I talked to, his name is Don Flo, runs an automotive company, but he said, blood is like profit. Hmm. Then he said, you can't live without it, but it's not your reason for living. Huh. No one stands in front of the mirror in the morning and says, well, I got great blood today. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is you can't live without it. And so there's this line that if you do these things well, you generate profit. But there's the danger that you might then say, okay, I'll do these things well so that I can create a profit. Sure, sure. And you cross that line with money and you cross that line with people. So another leader I talked to said, if you treat people with love, dignity, and respect, they'll work harder and they'll appreciate their job more and you will do well as a company. But if you treat them with love, dignity, and respect so that they'll work harder, they will see through you in an instant. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> and so you see, you can't turn these into a formula of step-by-step but rather you have to have a deep set commitment. And I think that what drove ServiceMaster through those first five leaders was each one of them in their faith commitments. And this is where it was important, I believe, said there's something much bigger and more important than me making money. Yeah. It's not that me making money isn't important. It's there's something more important, and that is the value and dignity of people. Yeah. And it's easy to do that when things are going well. When things yeah. are going poorly, that's hmm. when you begin to ask the question, well, maybe I need to, to change my ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they had the courage to stick with it. So there is one incident that happened when Bill Pollard took over. The stock of ServiceMaster dropped from 37 to 17. Oof. And the reason it dropped was because the market was saying there's been some changes in the way Medicare distributes costs. And we believe their hospital business, which is a large part of their business, is going to go away. And Bill said, I can't give in to that. Yeah. We have to be innovative, but hold to our principles. And they came right out of it in a way that was just amazing. Yeah. I think another leader might say, maybe I ought to change my ways. 
Yeah. And, and so you, you see, it's this, it's not a formula. It's a commitment. Yeah. And I urge leaders to think about what it is to be deeply committed and for people of faith, this idea that others are of value, that I should be a servant leader, that I should care about others, ought to be a part of who we are. And yeah. that's where I think that faith commitment actually played an important role. But I have seen companies without the faith commitment whose leaders somehow have this passion of caring and developing people. Yeah. And it can really make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Costco, um, you know, and Starbucks. Again, great Pacific Northwest companies, right? But uh, the little bit of research I've done on Costco, they have a similar model and, and profit goal to uh, many of their competitors, but treat their people, uh, treat their customers, and treat their uh, partners, their industry partners, much, right. much better. Uh, more of a partnership as opposed to, hey, we're the gorilla. You right. did our way. Um, so very, very interesting. So the, the website for um, that is the ethics.org, right? Where you right. Have yeah, that's where I've got all the interviews that I've done with these business leaders. Yeah. And the book is The Service Master Story, Navigating Tension Between People and Profit. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Um, this, it uh, it uh, was a great, very good read, uh, both from a historical perspective as well as you know, some actionable um, items that uh, a modern entrepreneur, especially in the restoration field, can can implement if they're trying to build a company that reflects their values. So, yeah, well, you know, Service Master very early on got into the restoration business by accident, Yeah, uh, got called in to restore after a fire uh, and recognize the tools they had were uh, were a part of that. So I think it's exciting. Uh, to think about the restoration business. And uh, so I'm, I, I think these principles really do apply. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. You know, you want good customers lead to good, you know, revenue and, and profit opportunities. Right. And, and now more than ever, you need good people if you want to get good customers. And so, like you said, you know, having a good core that takes care of those people is, uh, is essential. And it, it starts from the top down and then as well as the bottom up, you know, those have to be in flow. So um, can't recommend it enough. I really did enjoy reading it, Al. And uh, thank you so much for joining us for uh, this podcast. It's an honor. Thank you, John. All right. Thank you, sir. Bye. Okay. Sheesh. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I, 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 I couldn't recommend it enough, um, especially uh, like we said, if that's your, um, if you have a passion to build, I think most people get into business, you know, you obviously you want to make money. Um, most people that get into property restoration see an opportunity there to make money, but also it's an industry like we talked about with Randy at the opening um, where you can help people. I mean, you're directly involved helping people when the worst happens, water, fire, and, and, a, and a list of other hazards. So um, in that regard, uh, you know, humble plug, we did write. Thankfully, like I said, I've got a, a, a cadre of uh, talented co-authors <laughs> that uh, more than make up for my deficiencies. So this is service-based industries, skilled trade, obviously um, a lot of uh, property restoration specific things, uh, but be intentional culture is out paperback and, um, and, uh, on Kindle. Um, so check those books out, add them to your library. We had, it's been the, the month of books when words collide by, uh, Bill Wilson, resolving insurance and coverage claims disputes and man, the manual for, uh, leadership and restorative drying. This book is, um, just, I haven't had a chance to read through all of it yet, obviously, but just Ken, um, if you listen to Ken Larson on our podcast, uh, just he's dedicated his life to sharing the best um, information available. You know, it's, obviously this is geared towards um, restoration with uh, water mitigation. So awesome um, resources we have available to help you shorten your dang learning curve. Uh, for both your personal and your professional development. So uh, thank you all for listening and watching and sharing and liking. 
And um, again, uh, just amazed that we continue to be able to pull in um, excellent guests. So uh, have a good rest of your day. We'll see you next time on the Dio Joe Podcast. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard.